Did you know that anger actually serves a purpose? That there's a reason why you feel anxious? Emotions are a survival mechanism, just like hunger. Learning the reasons why you feel certain emotions can help you to not punish yourself for feeling them or trying to distract yourself from those emotions with food. Join Candace Conroy and I on this deep dive into feelings and food. Candace is a licensed mental health therapist and the owner of Let's Talk Counseling Services in Orlando, Florida. You can check her out at letstalkcounselingservices.com. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. I am your host for the day. My name is Megan Ware. I'm a registered dietitian. I am here today with Candice Conroy. She is a licensed mental health counselor. And can you tell us what that means for those of us that don't know? So I work with individuals with anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, panic attacks, doing individual therapy. So, which means that, I, you know, in the past I've run groups and I've worked at outpatient centers and rehabs and all different kinds of places, um, and now I'm in private practice. How was this, how did you know that this existed as a career? Because I will say probably not until college did I even know that mental health counselors were even a thing. Uh, I think even when I was a kid, uh, I saw therapists on TV. You know, and mm-hmm. I was always kind of mm-hmm. drawn to what are they doing? Why do they get to ask people questions for a living? Oh, Why okay. Um, so it's something that I thought of. I didn't seriously know you could actually make a career out of it um, when I was a kid, but it was something I'd always been kind of drawn to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually went to undergrad for art. Okay. Which I decided was <laughs> definitely not the direction I wanted to go with my whole life. Um, and ended up going back for my master's and kind of deciding at that point that I wanted to look more into therapy and what that might look like as a career and what the options were Mm -hmm. and kind of settled into it. So what do you, what do you have to have to have a license? Like what kind of education, what kind of degree do you have to take a test to be certified or how does that work? All of those things. So you have to get a master's degree in some sort of counseling related field, either psychology or counselor education or mental health. Um, different universities call the program different things, but essentially it's a master's program uh, that includes practicum, which is, um, you know, I went to UCF and they have a community counseling clinic, which basically means that you start seeing your first clients in a really controlled environment Mm -hmm. where you have video and audio monitoring and your professors who are licensed therapists at the time are sitting in a control room and they are plugging in and out of sessions and they're well, that's like they're scary feedback. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it is it it's a really intimidating process to start with but it's really helpful because you're getting live feedback about oh you should follow up about this you should ask them about that you know you want to assess for this um kind of as you're going through the session because it it's just really intimidating to start. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you do um, a bunch of hours of internship during school. Um, once you graduate, you have to do 1,500 hours. Uh, a licensed supervisor kind of okay. looks over that you meet with every week, and you mm-hmm. kind of go over your clients and talk through treatment planning and that sort of stuff. So um, it's usually about two years after you graduate that you're able to actually apply for your license and sit with a licensing exam and stuff. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular population that you enjoy working with right now in your private practice? I love working with adults with anxiety. Okay. Um, probably because I've dealt with it myself. That's so what, that was my next question. Of, like, do you, did you personally uh, deal with that? And that's why. I think it's something that, you know, obviously I think we all deal with it to a certain extent. You know, yeah. It's, just, it's, a, it's an inescapable feeling in life. Um, but anxiety is by far my favorite because I find that you know, clients with anxiety are really motivated mm-hmm. to figure out what to do. Um, mm-hmm. They're really kind of driven by a motor, <laughs> if you think of it that way, um, to do something about it, whereas other populations are sometimes harder to motivate or, 
you know, or to kind of get that initiative to do things outside of sessions, it could be really challenging for some people. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm probably diving in deep here, and this is a really big question, but what are some of the general things that you can do if you're dealing with anxiety? Well, uh, the first thing that I always do um, is just education about what's happening. Okay. Because a lot of times people don't really understand why they're feeling the way that they're feeling, why their mind is going in circles with all these what-if scenarios, why they can't stop worrying about things even though they've never happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, and is know, that physiological? Just, like, what is going on there? So it's there's a lot of factors there. It's, um, you know, we always have the kind of genetic predisposition to certain things. We've got, you know, your childhood experiences and whatever situations you grew up in. You've got current major life stressors, you know, any big changes or things going on in your life. And then, you know, what I try and focus on a lot is how did you learn to deal with your feelings? Um, Okay. Because however you learn to deal with it says a lot, has a lot to do with kind of where you go after something stressful happens. Okay. Um, You know, like, for example, if let's say you you have a spouse pass away, which is an incredibly devastating thing for anybody. Um, but if you, you know, grow up in an environment where you're not allowed to express sadness, you know, if you're, if you're, if you do, that you're weak or you're somehow failing the people around you or you're burdening them, um, then you're going to keep it in mm-hmm. and it's going to create, going to turn you into kind of an emotional pressure cooker, mm-hmm. um, which then what could have been you know, a fair amount of crying and, you know, like sharing with friends about how much you miss that person and, you know, how scary it is to think about what your life looks like after them turns into you holding it all in and feeling really tense and really overwhelmed. Um, you know, and sometimes that can go on for years after the person is gone. And then at that point you're wondering, you know, why do I, why do I feel this way? Like what is happening? Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of people come into therapy when they can no longer really tie what they're feeling to something that's happening, and it starts to kind of scare them. Yeah, and they don't understand why. Yeah, okay. they start looking around, and they're like, well, my life is fine. Okay. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why I'm mm-hmm. sad, or I don't know why I'm anxious. Everything's fine. So um, a lot of times you can kind of tie that back to, well, this is maybe something previously that mm-hmm. happened that you just never really dealt with, and that stays in your body in some way. Yeah, so there's a couple pieces of it, right? There's the emotional processing part, which is that part, right? So if you go through something and you have emotions that you need to process about it and you don't, then they kind of sit in there. Okay. And they just create pressure. Um, And then add to that little day-to-day moments that you have feelings about, and it's just kind of throwing them on the pile. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing is kind of what your beliefs are surrounding that. You know, because, like, for example, a lot of people have... Um, beliefs about, you know, I should never be vulnerable. I should never let people in. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you develop a belief like that, maybe it keeps you safe when you're younger because maybe the people around you are really critical or really judgmental. And so sharing with them maybe wouldn't be the best idea. Mm-hmm. But then if you take that belief into adulthood, when you get to pick your people, so to speak, and you're still not sharing anything, you're still not being vulnerable, then you're essentially dealing with everything solo. Um, which becomes really overwhelming for a yeah. lot of people. And um, I think for a lot of people, it leads to kind of a feeling of, like, disconnection. Like, the people around me don't see me. They don't understand me. They don't really know what's going on. Um, and then that kind of, for a lot of people, spirals into depression. So yeah. <laughs> it becomes this big kind of circle that people go through. I bet a lot of it is discovering things about yourself that you didn't know because I I bet with a lot of people they haven't really even thought about how they process emotions until someone actually asks them yeah I think um you're absolutely right I think a lot of people don't stop to think about how they think or stop to think about how they feel Mm -hmm. um because they're not really things that we emphasize you know like when people are younger or when we're teaching kids or even you know teenagers or college students like how to be an adult how to go through life we're not really talking to them all that much about you know where does your mind automatically go when you mess up with something mm-hmm. you know like we're, we're not really having those conversations with most people yeah um so most people aren't really in the habit of sitting there and saying oh you know every time I make a mistake my mind immediately goes to I'm such an idiot Um, Or, like, stopping to notice that if something is, like, for example, one of the things that I noticed about myself was if something doesn't immediately come really easily to me, 
that I have a tendency to back away from it and I'll put it down and I'll procrastinate on it for forever because doing it makes me feel really bad about myself. Okay. Um, you know, the flip side of that though is that then I feel bad about myself for procrastinating. Yeah. Right. And so even just noticing that I have that habit, right. Like having that awareness makes it so that when I'm doing something that's new or that's frustrating, I can feel the urge to pull away from it Mm -hmm. and I can just notice it and just kind of sit through it and continue kind of working through whatever the thing is, you know, until I get past that point of frustration. Yeah. Um, so starting to kind of notice what your patterns are gives you a lot of tools. So you're not just kind of automatically doing things without really knowing why you're doing them or or how they might be kind of shooting you in the foot. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about that sitting through your emotions because this is something that comes up a lot in conversations with clients of when they're eating and so like you're eating so you don't have to feel uncomfortable or you're eating Mm -hmm. so you don't have to feel sad or you're eating so you don't have to feel whatever that emotion is like replacing it with something else and really trying to get to the heart of what are you actually feeling and why can you not just feel sad just feel sad instead of eating whatever Mm -hmm. does that come up for you a lot (laughs) yeah it comes up a lot um (laughs) I, I try and, you know, kind of walk people through a little bit about, um, you know, I think a tendency, you know, if you point out, you know, you're not sitting through your emotions and, and that's what you need to be doing. And then um, I've tried that route. It doesn't work. People just, <laughs> people just blame themselves ultimately as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, through research, we know now that biologically we're wired to avoid pain, mm-hmm. right? Like we that don't touch sense. hot stoves. Right, yes. Um, and ironically, you don't even have to touch the hot stove in order to know not to touch it, right? Somebody can just tell you it's painful and you will avoid it. Um, and we treat emotional pain the same way, right? You don't have to experience loss in order to try and avoid it. Right, okay. You don't have okay. to mm-hmm. experience failure in order to be afraid of it. Um, so that's kind of, you know, teaching people that that's kind of our natural state and that if you want to live your life, you know, in a, in a direction that's more kind of conducive to where you're trying to go as opposed to just the goal of avoiding pain, um, that part of it is going to be sitting through those things and re- kind of recognizing those things. So, you know, one of the things that I talk to people about once we start talking about emotions and pain and, you know, how do you cope with that? Because one of the things I want to know is, okay, so you're in pain. What have you been doing to deal with it before you came to therapy? You know, so what are your kind of avoidance techniques, which for a lot of people involves food. It involves food, it involves alcohol, it involves all different kinds of things. And when people are, you know, eating for comfort or they are eating to escape, um, a lot of times that's something that we have to kind of sit and explore. And, you know, I find that a lot of times when people eat for comfort, it's because of loneliness. It's because they're feeling emotions that they feel like they can't share with people or that people don't want to help them bear the burden of or that people wouldn't accept them for. Uh, and it becomes a really isolating feeling, right? And so then food becomes this kind of non-judgmental companion, mm-hmm. right? Just, just like a glass of wine or a beer for a lot of people that drink. It becomes you know, this kind of non-judgmental thing that you can sit on your couch with and and you can feel better after you've spent some time with it. Um, You know, except that a lot of times what we find is anything that we use to get away from emotions, it really is only kind of a short-term Band-Aid, right? So if I'm feeling really sad and I go eat half of a pizza and immediately afterwards, maybe I feel satiated, maybe I feel sleepy, maybe my mind is spinning less. you know, but give it an hour <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, and then I'm off to the races of self-judgment yeah. and, you know, criticizing myself yeah. and, and the anxiety is right back where, right back where I started. And for a lot of my clients, they, they recognize that too. And it's, it's not an hour afterwards. It's, it's directly afterwards, whether it's a Snickers bar, it's a handful of Skittles mm-hmm. or it's a whole pizza directly afterwards, they recognize okay, now not only do I feel what I felt before, now I also feel guilty or I feel shameful or Mm -hmm. I feel whatever it is that they're feeling. So where do you start with with people when when you when they're starting to recognize those habits like what what's a something so let's say we have someone that's listening and they're recognizing that that happens to them what what would your advice to them be? So the first things that I usually try and teach clients is 
stop and identify your emotions. Label all the ones that are showing up for you, right? So if you're particularly emotional in a moment, stop and see if you can put labels on all the ones that are showing up, right? So I'm angry, I'm sad, I feel guilty, I'm disappointed. Um, you want to stay away from words like, I'm upset, <laughs> I'm stressed. Those are, they're really broad kind of umbrella words that just make us, they kind of just describe, I feel bad, but I don't know what kind of bad. Okay. Um, so a first step, you know, I really like to have people kind of sit down and just, just label all your emotions that are showing up for you, seeing if you can get in the habit of identifying them. Um, and once they're getting in the habit of identifying them, can you identify when that urge to get away from them starts? You know, can you identify where that, like, oh, I gotta shut this off, like, I can't deal with this feeling, I can't tolerate this, you know, or for a lot of people, it's like, this feeling will never end. Mm -hmm. um, it's just starting to notice it. And then starting to, one of the tools that I try and give every single one of my clients is learning to validate why does it make sense that that's showing up for you? Because that's where a lot of times we get that trying to get away from an emotion is because we say, well, this is stupid. I shouldn't be feeling this mm -hmm. way. This, you know, I Beating be yourself sad, up. Or I yes. shouldn't be disappointed or, yes. or nobody else feels this way or, um, or one of my favorite ones. All of my emotions should match, right? So if you, for example, have just gone through a breakup and you initiated the breakup, but you missed the person, right? So you're angry <laughs> and you miss them. Right. So a lot of times that's where we start to get those feelings. We're like, this is just messed up. These feelings are just broken. I need to get away from them. They're driving me crazy. Um, you know, so teaching clients to just validate why does it make sense that you're feeling what you feel, you know, which is kind of as simple as stopping to ask yourself, you know, if you were to put a thousand people in this scenario and they had all gone through this experience, what emotions can you expect would show up for most people? And that'll usually pick out the bulk of what you're feeling, mm -hmm. right? And you may have a few extras that are kind of unique to you in that scenario, but the ones that are unique to you, you can validate those too by kind of stopping to say, okay, what did I learn in my past? Like what experiences have I gone through where it makes sense that this other feeling is showing up for me? Mm -hmm. Whereas most people would just have maybe these other ones over here. Um, because if you can start to really validate, it makes sense that everything that I'm feeling right now I'm feeling then it gets a lot less scary that was the that was the thing that stuck with me the most after our first conversation that we had was that you said it's not about punishing yourself for feeling that emotion you can feel that emotion even if it doesn't make sense like the breakup mm -hmm. and now you miss the person maybe mm -hmm. it doesn't make logical sense in your head but it's not the emotion isn't something that you should try to control necessarily you should be okay mm -hmm. with feeling that emotion and then it's what you do in reaction yeah. to that emotion that's like it's such a freeing concept to me that oh like you know if I'm frustrated right now it doesn't make sense why am I frustrated right now like why am I mad at my husband because he did whatever like it doesn't really make sense he didn't put away the laundry well I didn't ask him to put away the laundry so it doesn't make sense that I'm frustrated but I can sit there and say oh, Megan you're frustrated you don't need to beat yourself up about being frustrated but you need to figure out what you're going to do about that frustration are you going to start yelling that the laundry isn't put away or are you going to think about oh maybe i just should have asked yeah and i think that you know one of the things that is kind of helpful when you're trying to figure out how to validate your emotions is figuring out um you know because we tend to kind of sort emotions into like the good pile and mm. the bad pile right yeah and the good pile is things like happiness and joy and love and excitement and the bad pile is anything that doesn't feel good or that other people are uncomfortable watching in somebody else right so anxiety sadness guilt shame anger anything that we say like oh, those are all negative don't feel those mm -hmm. um you know but if you can really kind of familiarize yourself with what all of those emotions that we put in the bad pile have a healthy function right so for example anger is the emotion that helps you set boundaries it's the emotion that lets you, you know, respond when you're being treated unfairly, or it helps you to identify when there's some sort of conflict with your values, or, you know, if somebody is hurting you in some way, right? You're supposed to get angry. Wow, right? never so, thought about it that way. It serves, a, it serves a purpose, <laughs> but it serves a purpose. Yeah, I never thought and about so, it that way. You know, if you think about, you know, you use the breakup scenario, right? Of like being angry and you broke up with this person and now you miss them, right? And being really confused about why do I have both of these feelings? Well, 
you would be angry if your needs weren't met in the relationship, right? Like maybe that's what spurred you to break up with the person, right? Mm -hmm. But if you take somebody away from somebody, you know, if somebody is a central part of your life and then you just remove them for whatever the reason, you're going to miss them, right? Because they're going to leave holes in your day, right? Like people that you check in with, times that you would tell, maybe tell that person what was going on or make plans for dinner or certain things. And so there's going to be this feeling of something missing, Right. And so it makes sense that you're frustrated. Right. Because your needs weren't met. It also makes sense that you're missing them. Right. Yeah. Even though you don't particularly maybe love either of those feelings. Mm-hmm. But if you can learn about kind of what is the healthy function, what is this emotion trying to tell me? And then you usually kind of detective work your way back from there with like, OK, what am I supposed to do with this? So logical. If <laughs> <laughs> We don't learn this stuff, though. No, I mean, you're opening you my eyes to a lot. I, I never thought about anger actually having, there's a reason why we feel that way. Just like, I, th- I always mm-hmm. go back to, like, hunger. There's a reason why you're hungry. It's not, your body's not just sending you that signal just for the hell of it. It's like, we're hungry because we need you to give us something. Mm-hmm. And you have certain cravings because your body needs you to give it that thing. So I never thought about emotions as serving a, a function like that. What about what about anxiety? So anxiety is our prepare, prevent, escape, avoid emotion, right? So anxiety is supposed to come up in situations where you need to either be ready or you need to get out. Okay. <laughs> um, right? So we're supposed to experience anxiety in certain situations, right? So, for example, today when I was getting ready for this podcast, right? Like, I was putting together, like, what are the things I'm going to talk about? And, you know, what are the things I want to make sure that we mention? Or, you know, there were specific things I wanted to look up, right? Or if you were going to a job interview, right? You would be thinking over, well, you know, how am I going to answer these questions if they ask me these things? And you're supposed to have the anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't feel at all nervous, you won't prepare. Right. Right? You'll show yep. up and you're just kind of it. You're yeah. like, everything's going to be fine. And then sometimes maybe it is, sometimes it's not, right? But when you think of kind of going into a situation where you need to be prepared, you're going to experience some anxiety. It's natural to you. You're supposed to. Um, you know, and you're also supposed to experience it in any situation where there's danger or something in your environment kind of triggers, you know, that there might be danger, right? So if you get home and your front window's broken or your front door's wide mm-hmm. open, right? You're supposed to get anxious. Yep. You're supposed to register, like, okay, something's different. I need to investigate. Like, I need to figure out what's going on. Um, so we start kind of paying attention to those things. Cool. That makes sense. Do you have any other, like, sadness? So sadness <laughs> I love hearing about these. supposed to help us <laughs> identify when there's an absence or a loss in our life, right? So a lot of times sadness comes up anytime um, something that we've gotten attached to is no longer here. So it can either be a person, right? Which is how we normally think of sadness, right? right. So if you lose somebody, lose a loved one, um, obviously you're gonna be sad, but we also grieve other kinds of losses that we're attached to, right? So let's say you grow up believing that you're gonna be a doctor Mm. and then you can't pass your MCAT. Right? So you have to grieve that, right? You're going to have to let go Mm -hmm. of that idea, and you're going to go through a loss, right? And so when you think of it, right, the idea is with sadness, we tend to kind of pull back, right? And we tend to kind of gravitate towards whoever is the closest, safest, most comforting people in our lives, and we cry with them. We seek things that are, you know, kind of physically comforting, right? Like cozy blankets and pillows, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's in Mm -hmm. our nature, right? Yeah. And if you are sad and you're out and about, you've got the mask on, right? right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because sadness is supposed to help you get through losses. And, you know, when you think about um, other emotions, like even guilt, for example, right? You said, so like somebody eats a handful of Skittles, right? And then the guilt immediately sets in. Guilt is your moral compass, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's supposed to keep you acting in ways that line up with the kind of person you want to be. Making the kind of choices you want to see yourself as. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so anytime you kind of step off that path, we judge ourselves, you know? And sometimes um, sometimes it's fair, right? Like so if a friend tells me something in confidence and then I go share that with five people... I'm supposed to feel guilty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I can so that I can go back and own up to it and apologize and, you know, make amends for it. Um, even though feeling guilty probably wouldn't feel great, it would feel really uncomfortable and having to, you know, address it would feel really uncomfortable. But 
imagine the world if you don't have it, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and shame is the same way, right? Shame is kind of our be careful who you tell. Um, shame is our you know avoiding rejection emotion, mm-hmm. um, which is why a lot of times it comes up with food, right? Because yeah. when people eat something that they're kind of judging themselves for, they they feel like oh it's not just a bad choice. I'm a bad person. Right. Uh, right? So it yes. goes from this kind of, yeah. I'm guilty to I'm a terrible person because I'm weak or because I'm, you know, I, I can't take care of myself or, you know, it kind of escalates to this extreme and we mm-hmm. get these kind of feelings of shame. And do you find that a lot of people that you work with, do they kind of put those labels on themselves as I'm good or I'm bad depending on the way I'm eating or if I'm following my diet or if I'm, do you talk to people about that a lot? I have a lot of people that struggle with, um, perfectionism. Yeah. Perfectionism and anxiety kind of going in. Yeah. Um, and so there really is kind of this idea of if I can't do it perfectly, then I'm a complete and utter failure. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which is where we get, ironically, like some people who are perfectionists will, you know, like if we use the example of food, they will plan out their menu and they're doing meal prepping and they're weighing all their ounces and they're counting their calories and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to eat perfectly. Yes. The um, raw, vegan, local. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to find <laughs> the most perfect thing. Um, you know, and one of the things that a lot of times we run into is what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. What does perfect mean, right? So if I'm eating perfectly, like, perfect according to who, mm-hmm. right? So if one person approves of my diet and my eating performance, right, if they're grading me on that, one person gives me an A, but then I, you know, report all that stuff to somebody else who has a completely different yep. nutrition theory, then they're going to look at me and tell me that I'm failing miserably, exactly. right? So yes. <laughs> this perfectionism of I have to, I have to do it perfectly, other people have to approve of it, um, it gets really kind of wrapped up in everything. It paralyzes a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I have people that come in and they're, they're like, I don't know where to start because this person's paleo and this person's vegan and this person's a carnivore and it's all this information that's coming at me and I don't know how to tie it all together in a way that makes sense for me. And so they just don't start. So mm-hmm. you put your head in the sand, you don't even think about it. It's like, I'm not going to choose this beautiful salad because it also has blue cheese on it. Blue cheese is bad for me. So I'm just going to go with the cheeseburger and fries because that's the easy decision. And I don't have to think about is that ticking all of those boxes, head in the sand. I just keep going with life and not think about it. I've had a lot of people that we've really had to have heart to heart that that perfect scenario is never going to exist for nutrition. It will never, ever exist. And that is 100% okay. It should never exist. You should never be perfect. You're going to enjoy pizza. You're going to enjoy cake. Like someone's going to have a birthday. You have to be okay with that. And that's not a reason not to start and not to move along this trajectory of getting better and improving your health along the way. Maybe your blood sugar, blood pressure numbers are never going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean we can't improve them along the way. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of people that struggle with that, I'm either, I'm either doing it perfectly or I'm failing miserably. Um, you know, they do it. They're kind of swing towards, I'm going to throw myself headlong into this and make it my part-time job. Um, or head in the sand, I won't touch it, mm-hmm. won't even think about it, um, because I don't think I can do it perfectly, so I won't do it at all. Um, and when it comes to trying to kind of push through that, a lot of times what you know, I try and teach people is about looking at, you know, basically how does that harm you? Um, Like helping people to really kind of examine, like, how does this mindset of I'm either a complete success or a complete failure, how does that harm you? How does that hold Mm. you back? Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of times they think it's helping them, right? Yes, I'll beat myself up about (laughs) it, so I'll do better. Yeah, so they're like, well, I've got this bad coach in my head, and she's really doing me lots of favors, right? But when you stop and really examine, okay, what effect does this actually have on my behavior? What effect does this actually have on kind of long-term how I treat myself, how I feel? Um, And we find more often than not that it actually really limits your life. It limits your ability to improve, your ability to try new things, your ability to grow, and, you know, and so stopping to really kind of look at you know, what are my specific kind of behaviors that when I'm trying to be perfect about something, what are the things that I do? You know, and for example, like one of them is, is checking, right? So with food might be like, 
I'm weighing and I'm reweighing and I'm calculating and I'm recalculating, um, and instead trying to first just kind of cut that back to a minimum and then second kind of give it up entirely mm-hmm. and really just kind of go in the direction of like okay I'm trying to do this um, you know trying to test out and see if you know essentially if the world doesn't end if I don't do it perfectly mm-hmm. um, and more often than not people find you know well actually like I ended up feeling better even though I wasn't weighing my chicken you know or even yes. though I wasn't like they start to really kind of see the benefits of it you know regardless of what area of life it's in of when they start dropping those behaviors of trying to measure and count and yeah themselves when people ask like hey should i be counting my calories should i be weighing my food should i be tracking in my fitness pal i always tell them it, it depends on what kind of person you are i really need to dive deep with you and ask you lots of questions before i can just answer that right up front because if you're the type of person where you don't really know a lot about food and we're using this as a learning tool like you don't know that that piece of cheesecake from cheesecake factory has 3000 calories in it and you're getting it four times a week okay that is a tool where i can show you this is probably derailing all that work you're putting in all week when you go and do something like that but if you're someone who knows everything there is to know about food and you've been weighing and measuring it and counting it for the past 30 years do you really think that tracking every single day is going to get the result that we're trying to get here usually no usually it's a stressor usually it's not going to put us in usually we need to take a step back here and figure out what's really going on with your relationship with food it's not i'm counting wrong or i'm 20 calories off absolutely i mean i saw that even you know a few years ago when i was first trying to kind of switch over my diet to like eating healthier and i started tracking right and mm-hmm. i started you know using one of those apps where you scan all the barcodes and it counts yep. all the calories it does all that for you and over you know the course of a couple weeks I realized that my anxiety was going up Mm -hmm. right just from the sheer fact of watching it and micromanaging it and you know judging myself based on whether I picked this or that you know did I take the two Oreos or did I eat a whole chicken salad right because they had the same caloric intake according to this app (laughs) um you know and kind of watching my anxiety and my self-judgment just kind of creep upwards yeah um you know and it was hard to really step back and like you said like try and pull um, you know, I think obviously that's what, where nutritionist kind of comes in. It's like, it was hard for me to step back and pull anything useful from that other mm-hmm. than just feeling bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah. And that's exactly what I said. I need to ask you a lot of questions surrounding like, how do you feel when you're tracking these things? Cause I do have like my engineer people who love the data and they feel amazing at the end of the day when they get to hit complete this entry and then they get to put it in their spreadsheet and they bring that spreadsheet into me and they love that aspect of it and that makes them feel like they're moving in the right direction and that's Mm -hmm. that if you're that type of person great we can use that to our advantage but for a lot of people it's actually a disadvantage like you said it makes yourself it makes you feel bad <laughs> so when you recognize that doing you're doing something that's making you feel bad constantly and i'm using the word bad i know it's like a <laughs> makes you feel guilty constantly maybe that's something that we need to take a step back and look at is this really yeah it's it's funny because when i you know when i started you know i kind of abandoned the <laughs> the calorie counting and the, that sort of thing and i tried to just make healthier choices and you know kind of cut certain things out and you know like try and find a way to do certain things in moderation and that sort of stuff um and I stopped really using I would say like numbers to measure my perfection yeah um I was actually a lot more in tune to how I felt when I ate certain things Mm -hmm. right so I realized that like for example you know if I would go out and I would eat a whole bowl of pasta right and some breadsticks and some salad and then I would go home and I would feel really heavy and really gross and I would just be really tired my brain would get kind of foggy and I was like, wow, this feels a lot like when I'm sad. Mm-hmm. I was like... And you didn't weird. need to track it to feel that. Exactly, yeah. right? And no app could have told me that. Right. Um, but it was something that just from kind of watching and noticing, like, okay, when I'm eating this way, like, this is what happens. When I eat that way, this is what happens. Um, and kind of noticing kind of that tie between, like, how it affects my body, how it affects my mood. Um, it was pretty interesting. That's something that I... I try to get people to do a food and mood journal. So let's not do numbers. Let's not talk about ounces, but let's talk about like, how did you feel when you ate that lunch? 
Did you feel energized afterwards? Did you feel satiated afterwards? Were you still hungry? Did you feel like, how are you feeling? What was your hunger level like? And so it's actually bringing to attention how they're actually feeling. Because a lot of people, they think if I have any kind of health or wellness goal, you have to tell your body to shut down its cues. Like, body, you're stupid. You don't know what I want. I know you're still hungry after I ate this chicken and broccoli, but that's all I get to eat right now because that's what fits my macros or fits my calories. So you learn to shut those cues off. So it's a very different feeling or a different, I guess, coaching style that people aren't used to when I say, I need you to really tune into those cues because that's the only way we're ever going to figure out what's going to work best for you specifically. It's not going to be this next diet that comes out that there's a set (laughs) of arbitrary rules for you to just follow. That's not going to be the thing. The thing for you is going to be how do we tune into those cues, figure out what your body responds best to, and the only way we can do that is by you paying attention to those signals. So, versus the using the numbers or the grades or mm-hmm. whatever that is. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I notice the most with, like, trying to shift my eating into more kind of a lifestyle rather than a diet, um, was that, you know, if I was going to eat something and feel bad, it would be within 24 hours, you know, that it would start to affect my mood or if it would start to affect me physically. Whereas if I eat well, it would take about two weeks before I would start okay. to notice, like, mm-hmm. and I would have to eat well, you know, consistently enough. And then, you know, within two weeks, I would notice, like, my brain got sharper. Like, okay. I was thinking quicker. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I had more energy, or I felt more kind of awake in the mornings, or, um, you know, all different kinds of stuff. But it was just kind of, it was, I mean, it feels kind of unfair to me when I think of yeah. it. Like, you know, yes. it takes 24 yes. hours to realize how, <laughs> how something makes you feel bad. Yeah. But to feel good, you got to stick with it a minute. What do you do with clients who do really like to have the grading systems or like give me an A through an F or a one, one through 10 when you're dealing with something like anxiety and you, you come in and you're like, I'm really dealing with this big issue. I need to fix it. Are you able to kind of give them things throughout the process to say like, hey, you were here when you started. Now we're at step three or now we're at step five for the people that really need that reassurance that they're making progress. Is yeah, there a way to, use, to do that? Um, I use like scaling questions and stuff. So a lot of times at the beginning of sessions, you know, I'll check in with people if they're working on anxiety and depression and say low self-esteem, you know, and I'll say like, you know, over the last week, you know, how severe was your anxiety on a scale of one to 10? You know, how severe was your depression on a scale of one to 10, just on average. Um, and a lot of times, you know, it, it really kind of varies based on how their day is going that day. Um, but I use those to kind of mark them down and people can see, you know, okay, like things have been going down for a while or I'll point out, you know, okay. So when we started kind of ramping up towards working on a more difficult part of therapy, notice that your anxiety was going up like the Mm -hmm. weeks leading up to that, you know, if we're talking about doing exposures or behavioral experiments or something like that, um, you know, people get kind of nervous about doing that and their anxiety starts going up and they think. What's an example of that? Like an exposure therapy, what does that mean? Um, so for example, I do, uh, so with anxiety, a lot of times, um, essentially what anxiety is, right, is your body has learned that something is a threat. And so anytime you go into that situation, your body's expecting something bad to happen. And all the systems are going to fire off as if something bad's going to happen, whether it does or not. Um, and so what exposures are for is kind of identifying what are you afraid is going to happen in that scenario. So what, what is the catastrophe that you're predicting? Um, and how are you predicting that you won't be able to handle it, right? Because that, that's the other part of anxiety, right? It's going to be horrible, worst case scenario. Um, and also I won't be able to deal. So exposure therapy starts to kind of look at, okay, what exactly am I saying is going to happen? Um, and even if that did happen, how could I handle it? Right. And then the actual exposure part is going into the scenario, right. And walking toward that anxiety, which goes against our survival instincts, Mm -hmm. but it's going toward that anxiety and knowing that your body will adapt. Right. And so for example, that might be things like driving or going into the grocery store for people who have anxiety, Mm -hmm. or it might be, um, I've done some exposures for people that are just strictly for certain emotions, right? So if somebody is, for example, anytime they get sad, they get anxious, right? Which means they can never lose anything. Nothing can ever disappoint yeah. them, right? Because if they do, it's going to trigger anxiety for them. And so then their exposure homework might be going home and watching sad movies. Oh my gosh. Just, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. which to them might be the most yeah. terrifying thing ever because they're like, well, I'm going to cry and, 
you know, what if somebody sees me, right? And so the exposure might start with something as simple as go home and watch a sad movie alone when you know nobody's gonna see you and just let yourself feel it. And then notice when it moves on, right? Like it's a storm cloud and it rolls in and like yeah. watch it roll back out, right? Because a lot of times the fear is like, well, the feeling's gonna come and it's gonna stay forever. Mm -hmm. And we only really learn that the feeling comes, but I can survive it. And then it passes mm -hmm. by actually experiencing the situation, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what exposure is, is actually experiencing it and letting your body learn that that feeling passes, that whatever the situation is actually isn't dangerous or isn't likely to, you know, turn into some sort yeah. of catastrophe. And that even if something is uncomfortable or something doesn't go maybe the way that you wanted it to, you can handle it. Right? The world doesn't end. Um, I see a lot of clients in that exact situation with, like, working out or gyms where they're so anxious about actually walking through the door. But if I can just get them to walk through the door and talk through, like, what makes you anxious about this? Well, everybody's going to be looking at me. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to fall off the treadmill. I'm going to... All these things are going to happen. But if they can just go through that whole process and then show themselves that... Everybody there just cares about themselves. Nobody cares about what you're doing. Everybody's just thinking about themselves and are you looking at me? Like, everyone else is just thinking that too. But what I struggle with is kicking them through that door. Like, actually yeah. getting them to... Yeah, and that's where, you know, looking at, um, you know, part of cognitive behavioral therapy is looking at, like, what are your thoughts telling you? What are, you know, some of those predictions? Like, everybody's going to be watching me. They're all going to be judging me. They're going to think I'm an idiot. Um, they're going to be thinking I don't belong there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go flying off the back of the treadmill, right? Like, what are all of these thoughts that are running through your head that are keeping you out of the gym? Um, and learning to challenge some of those things. So, for example, it might be, you know, have you ever done something new and had similar, you know, fears that you were maybe started a new job or done something where you were worried that, you know, people were going to be observing you and they were going to be judging you? And looking back and saying, okay, well, how many people were actually staring at you? Mm -hmm. How many people, you mm -hmm. know, when you started that new job and you walked into that cubicle or you walked <laughs> into that room and you had no idea what you were doing, how many people in there just stared at you the whole time, <laughs> right? And who in there actually called you an idiot, right? Because, like, part of our mind reading, right, is when we read other people's minds, everybody at the gym is going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to yeah. think that I'm a loser. Um, has anybody ever actually said that to you? You know, when you were on a weight machine, has anybody ever walked Come up and said, like, oh you idiot. God, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> how do you not know how to do this? You know, or is everybody, has somebody actually come up to you and tried to help you, right? Which, so when you start looking at, well, what does the actual evidence say? You know, when I'm not listening to my anxiety, when my anxiety is talking and telling me all these horrible things. Yeah. Um, but when we're looking at the actual evidence, well, how many times have you been walking and, like, gone shooting off the sidewalk? So what are the odds that you're really going to fly out this treadmill, right? Um, you know, assuming somebody else isn't controlling the speed of it, you know, what are the odds of that realistically happening? Yeah. Um, and getting them to kind of question it themselves, because one of the things that we find, you know, in therapy is that a lot of people come in with anxiety and people around them are so frustrated because they've been trying to tell them over and over again, what you're afraid of is not going to happen. Yeah. You're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Um, and they're still anxious, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to teach somebody to kind of question themselves, right? To question it themselves from the inside with the evidence, um, you know, because no amount of reassurance from the outside really appeases us, right? It's like mm -hmm. a little bitty band-aid for the anxiety, but eventually we're just anxious again. Mm -hmm. um, and so teaching people to kind of question, you know, what are you envisioning? You know, and how realistically, how likely is that? I know your anxiety says it's 100%, but <laughs> how realistic is it? Have you ever been on a treadmill before? How many times have you been on one and you flew off? You know, and most of the time they're going to say none. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, yeah. What about, let's talk about having a panic attack and physically what's happening in the body. Can you help me to understand? I've had several situations, whether it's someone I know or a friend of a friend who've gone into the ER and thought they're having a heart attack and they've been told it's a panic attack. At which point they're like, what? I, I'm not panicking. What do you mean? Like, this is something that's physically happening in my body. I, I'm not panicked about anything. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Um, so panic attacks are essentially kind of like a false alarm. Um, so if you think of it kind of like if you worked in an office building 
and the fire alarm was broken. And it just randomly went off, right? And every time it goes off, people go running out of the building because that's what you're supposed to do when a fire alarm starts blaring, right? Um, and then it turns out nothing's happening. <laughs> Everybody goes back to their work, mm-hmm. right? That's basically what a panic attack is, right? So it means that your body is picking up on some sort of threat, whether it's something that you're aware of or something that you're not, right? So it can be, for example, you know, I have clients with um, panic disorder, which is basically where you have recurring panic attacks and you're afraid of them happening again. And a lot of times they will have expected triggers, right? So where they know in this situation or when I'm thinking about this situation, it always triggers panic. Right. So it might be, you know, if they're thinking of, you know, somebody invites them to a dinner party and just the idea of being in a big social group, they're like, nope, that's one of my triggers. The second they start getting ready to go, maybe they've already decided to go. But the second they start getting dressed, panic attack. Right. Um, And for other people, it's more unconscious. Right. So for some people, they have um, kind of that alarm system is wired to any kind of change in their body. Right. So some people get panic attacks while they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Right, because they are so sensitive to any variation in heart rate or in breathing that when their body notices, oh, like my heart rate just buried a little bit, which it does for all of us, like all day long. Mm-hmm. Right? We most of us don't pay that all that much attention to it. Um, but if that's you know your body's kind of wired to pay attention to internal cues, then the second your heart rate varies, it's going to throw you into a panic attack, even though you're just sleeping, nothing's yeah. happening. Um, and what's happening during a panic attack is. Essentially, everything that you need to do in order to escape an actual emergency. Okay. Right? So it's going to, you're going to start sweating, right? Which helps you slip away from predators. People can't grab onto you. Your heart's going to be racing. So it's pumping blood and oxygen to all your muscles. Um, Ironically, like your circulation in your hands and your feet is going to slow down. So a lot of people get like tingly hands, Mm -hmm. tingly feet. Um, people get a lot of chest pressure because their breathing changes, right? It gets really shallow. Um, your digestion slows down, right? Because you yeah. don't need to be, like, digesting that cheeseburger while you're running from, like, a saber-tooth tiger, right? right? So all these bodily changes happen that you would actually really need if you were in an emergency. Um, but it becomes, I think, more anxiety-inducing when it's happening. For example, if you're just sitting at your desk um, and your body starts to feel like you're running from some sort of emergency mm-hmm. right it's a little scarier than when you're when you have an explanation for right what's happening. yeah yeah awesome thank you what's what's one of your favorite moments or your biggest wins with a client or a patient um I think that a lot of times for me it is kind of watching them take back their life because uh, a lot of times with anxiety, what happens is we start making this list of, oh, well, that triggers my anxiety, or this situation triggers my anxiety, or, you know, I can't be around, I can't be around social situations because that makes me anxious, and, oh, I can't, I can't start new jobs because that would make me anxious, and I can't, you know, so we start making this list of kind of, I think of them as like no-go zones, right? Because yeah. when I go into them, I feel anxious, and I can't do that. So um, one of my favorite moments in therapy is when people start kind of reclaiming that Mm -hmm. um, and they say, you know what, like I'm going to be anxious initially and I will survive it. Um, And they start kind of taking back their life. You know, they start taking back uh, their, you know, kind of their free will to go to social events they want to go to, you know, even if they're nervous. Um, And a lot of times they notice that the feelings start to wear off right over time when they start acting in ways where that aren't, you know, entirely designed to help them avoid certain feelings, um, that the feelings actually dissipate anyway. Yeah. Right. So it, that's one of my favorite parts, you know, and I have clients who, um, ironically they'll call me and they'll tell me, you know, like I did so great. Like I was so nervous and I just, I just did it anyway. Um, which is my favorite thing, right? Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Because then I'm like, well, it's working. (laughs) Yeah. Like you're taking your life back. Um, you know, because once they start doing that, it starts to have kind of a momentum. Yeah. I know everyone's different, but is there a uh, length of time that you usually work with people within? Is it months? Is it weeks? Is it years? So that really depends on a few things, right? It depends first on kind of how complex what it is that we're working on, Um, right? So if they're coming in for straightforward, I have panic attacks um, and they have no history of trauma, no substance abuse, none of that. Um, then it might be 15 sessions. Okay. 
Um, you know, is that like, like they come several times a week or once a week? Oh, no. or? Usually people come like once a week and then uh, we'll step down to kind of every other week once they kind of get a handle on things. Okay. Uh, and then a lot of people go down to maintenance sessions, which is like once a month or once every six weeks for, you know, a few sessions until they kind of get a handle on, okay, like I can take the training wheels off. Like I can do this on my own. Okay. Um, you know, but obviously like the more complex the issues are, uh, like with PTSD and things like that, the anxiety and the avoidance is a lot higher. So sometimes it can take longer to get through just kind of their initial anxiety about even doing therapy um yeah. you know before we can actually start the work of processing things so that kind of makes things a little longer do you feel like the stigma around going to therapy is getting better yeah, people absolutely. are talking more about it absolutely um i think definitely you know like when i talk to you know some of my friends and um you know even like my clients and stuff like that like, there's so I don't, I would be hard pressed to name even a dozen friends of mine that have never been to therapy. Yeah, same. Um, yep. You know, like, because, you know, people in their 30s, like, which is obviously my generation, like, there's so much more acceptance and encouragement to go process it, work on it. Get help. Like, get help. Like, yeah. You know, like, deal with this. Like, don't put your head in the sand. Um, and so I think that that's kind of trickling down into, like, younger generations. And then, you know, I've also seen, like, there's an increasing number of, you know, people from the older population. I think my oldest client I've ever seen was, uh, she was 75. <laughs> and, you know, she came in, she wanted to work on anxiety. And, you know, it, and it's not that common to see, you know, people that are senior citizens wanting to work on mental yeah. health. But it, even that is becoming kind of more prevalent. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear that people are willing to ask, more willing to ask for help now. I think our parents, at least my parents, come from that generation of, like, do it yourself. If you can do it yourself, that's a win. You don't need to, you know, build this yourself, fix your car yourself, like, do all the things yourself. Whereas now we're like, oh, there are people out here that are way better at this than I am. (laughs) Let me enlist them to do it. I think that, you know, there was also, you know, at least, like, kind of, earlier generations really there was this kind of idea of therapy as you sit on a couch and you tell this person who's looking down their nose at you about your dreams and they tell you what they mean and you sit there and you talk about your childhood the whole time and you basically (laughs) go in circles until you feel better um yeah and I think a lot of people think that that's all therapy is right because you know it's been in the last 40 years or so which is relatively young it's far as medicine is concerned mm-hmm. um it's only been in the last 40 years or so that other more kind of scientific based approaches have become more popular like cognitive behavioral therapy acceptance and commitment therapy emotion focused therapy different things like that that you know where you're going in and you're getting tools yeah you're getting techniques exactly you're getting yes. you know like you're learning how to do breathing exercises and mindfulness and you're learning how to get distance from those really upsetting thoughts or you know, how to slowly shift your behaviors in certain areas, right? So it's not just, how was your week? Right, um, yeah. You know, which, yeah. Like, that was kind of the, you could be there forever. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that there's more kind of emphasis on structured therapy mm-hmm. more than there used to be. One of the things that was eye-opening for me was uh, a dietitian friend on Instagram <laughs> that um, she was talking about, like, going to therapy with her husband and she talks about it regularly and she was saying how she was getting all these messages like oh like I didn't know you guys were having problems you guys always look so happy and she got on she was saying like we are happy but this is one of the reasons why like this is our one of our favorite nights of the week is going to therapy together because we get to reconnect and we get to actually talk about our relationship and any issues that are coming up so it's not that we're going to therapy because we're having problems like we're happy because we're going to therapy. And it's like, that's such a different way of thinking about things because I think people still automatically think, oh, this person's going to therapy. There's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is by far one of the kind of most exciting shifts that I've seen is that therapy used to be a last resort. Um, Yeah. You know, and, and even for most couples, it still is, right? Like research shows that married couples will wait until they're miserable for an average of seven years before they will go see a couples counselor. 
Um, so that's seven years of wow. really just kind of living in this miserable relationship and feeling disconnected and maybe arguing all the time before most people will still go and see a therapist. Um, you know, but it seems that more and more, especially with younger generations, that there's no, we want to prevent it from ever exactly. getting to that point. Exactly. Let's not wait until my depression is so bad that I'm having suicidal thoughts before I can talk to somebody. Like, let me go talk to somebody when I feel like my mood's just in a funk and I'm not sure why. You know, like, let's go to couples counseling before we're talking divorce. Like, yeah. let's go when we're just, we just have these gaps in communication that yeah. are frustrating the both of us. Um, you know, and so kind of nip it in the bud before it turns into something bigger. It's very similar to the the generations that I see that come into my office, which is I get a lot of people that have done all of the diets and tried all the things before they'll come into me. And then I get the 20, 22, 23-year-old who's like, I've never done a diet. I want to do this the right way. I want to get real help before I try all these other things on my own. And it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, we're recognizing that somebody else with this expertise can make me skip all the crap that I have to go through (laughs) (laughs) later on. I think we're, uh, you know, we've gotten to be kind of um, very focused on, like, efficiency and, you know, I want what I want when I want it. Um, And I think that that kind of lends itself to, I don't want to waste years kind of stumbling through something on my own, only to end up, you know, going to a therapist or going to a dietitian or something eventually anyway to answer all the questions that I couldn't figure out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just... Like, from that standpoint, it's just, it's more efficient, right? Like, would you want to spend 20 years figuring it out on your own? Or you want to just kind of sort through it now, and then maybe the next 20 years look different? Yeah. Um, Well, Candice, I feel like this was an eye-opening conversation for me. I learned a lot. I always learn a lot when we talk. So thank you for being here. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think that, you know, just kind of getting in touch with what you're feeling, getting in touch with what you're thinking, like learning to watch yourself. You know, I'm a big fan of kind of just becoming, just becoming an observer of yourself, you know, because it'll give you so much useful information as far as like habits that you have and whether it's surrounding food or other things and kind of figuring out how do I usually deal with things. Um, Because a lot of times we think of those things as just kind of a part of our personality, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and so if you can just sit back and start kind of watching what do you usually do when you feel certain things and how you usually handle that, um, you know, you might get a lot of useful information to do something with. Yeah, we actually talked about this um, with the behavioral therapist of just like the self analyzing the things that we tend to like just not look at that we should probably be looking at (laughs) and that's a lot of times that's what you employ a coach for whether it's a therapist or whether it's a dietitian or whether it's even like a personal trainer you're employing them to kind of look at your habits and what you're doing to help you figure out what you might be able to change there and so for every aspect in your life employing somebody who's an expert in that can be helpful and kind of help you skip some of those hardship steps along the way. Yeah, I think that it's hard to, you know, sometimes if you're doing self-monitoring and you're trying to kind of watch your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors, and but if you don't really know what to look for or you don't really know how to label it, yeah. or, um, then it can be hard to kind of... Like you said saying down. stressed, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> people feel stressed. I didn't know that was a general term. Like, that is a general term, <laughs> but when I think about it, I didn't realize that, realize that though. Well, thank you for being here. I enjoy this conversation. I hope you guys all enjoy it too. Until next time. Hey guys, Megan here. Have you heard of intermittent fasting? Have you thought about trying it or you've already tried it? Are you curious about the benefits of intermittent fasting? Or are you already convinced about the benefits, but you've struggled to make it part of your routine? Well, we have come up with a free resource for you. Go to go.orlandodietitian.com slash intermittent fasting to get your free guide to intermittent fasting. Again, that's go.orlandodietitian.com slash intermittent fasting to get all of your questions answered. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode was helpful. For topic requests or to apply to be a featured guest, 
please email kate at orlandodietitian.com. Want more nutrition awareness? Check out our blog for recipes, nutrition tips and tricks, as well as product recommendations. Our website is www.orlandodietitian.com. Dietitian is spelled D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N. This has been Dietitian Kate, and until next time, keep it real and keep it healthy.